Remember the feeling as a child When you woke up in morning smile It's time, it's time, it's time You felt like that again There is just no percentage in Remembering the past It's time you learn to live again And love and laugh Come with me Leave your yesterday Your yesterday behind And take a giant step outside your mind Good morning and welcome to episode 845 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, brought to you by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com and our Patreon supporters. I'm Sam Miller, along with Ben Lindbergh of 538. Hello, Ben. Hello. Later in the show, Jeff will be talking to Grant Brisby of McCovey Chronicles and SB Nation. In the meantime, we will be talking to Eric Malinowski, who is one of the internet's beloved figures. (laughs) Hi, Eric. Hi, Sam. Hi, Ben. Eric writes just about everywhere and uh, is always wise. He wrote the Giants essay for this year's Baseball Prospectus Annual, and uh, that's who he'll be talking about. Eric, before the offseason started, uh, when well, I guess when the offseason was, uh, was, was in its infancy, there were various rumors about the Giants pursuing various players, and I pointed out that Brian Sabian had not signed a outside free agent of any particular regard uh, in something like a decade, like uh, Tim Hudson would be maybe the exception. Tim Hudson, mm-hmm. I think, got two years and twenty million, I believe. Uh, before that, to get to a outside free agent who got uh, even eight figures, you have to go all the way back to Edgar Renteria, who was uh, signed before their first World Series title, uh, and even that was, I uh, think, something like two years and. 16 or something like that. And so I was kind of uh, skeptical that they would be in on many of these free agents that they were reported to be in on. It seemed as though the Giants preferred method of, of adding players from outside is to trade from them and then uh, kind of audition them and extend them if they do well. It seemed much more likely to me, for instance, that they would extend Mike Leak uh, than that they would go spend $200 million plus on two of the um, most famous free agents. Do you think that this is uh, significant that Brian Sabian uh, shifted course or is it uh, simply a a matter of me finding a trend where none existed before? (laughs) No, I think that this was an offseason that was very much atypical for for a Brian Sabian offseason. This was a team that I think that as especially as the offseason went on, I think that they saw their chance to get a guy like Grinky. And I think that, you know, according to all the reports and the TikToks and everything, it sounds like the Giants were literally minutes away <laughs> from signing Granke, which obviously would have turned the whole offseason in, in another direction. But I think that from the Granke signing, once he made his decision to go to Arizona, I feel like there must have been a collective decision in the front office that they probably saw a very specific and to a certain extent kind of a narrow window here to which they could really sort of dominate the NL West, you know, because, you know, them getting Granky was always going to be sort of a plus two because it meant that not only was he on the Giants, it meant that he was not on the Dodgers. So once Granky actually went to the Diamondbacks, that was still a plus one, I think, as far as the Giants were concerned. And so after that, you know, obviously it was when we saw <clears throat> them spend you know, boatloads of money on Samarja and Johnny Cueto and really make sort of like the very sort of long-term commitments, especially to like multiple pitchers in one off season that you just haven't seen them done before. But 
I do think that all of that sort of stemmed from the development that you saw last season with that core group of hitters in the middle of the lineup. I think if they didn't sort of make the leaps and bounds that they did last season and sort of set things up for this year, I don't think that you would have seen them probably be so aggressive on the starting pitcher free agent market. Uh, We will get to those hitters, but this is not the Dodgers episode, but I do want to ask you about the Dodgers because uh, so much of the way we sometimes assess teams off seasons are relative to where they stand in their division. uh, If it's a wide open division or, or whatever. And the Dodgers will never make it a wide open division. The Dodgers are projected by Pakoda to be uh, the best or the second best team uh, in baseball this year, uh, as they have been for the last few years. Do you think that this is, uh, if the Giants are looking at their chances of winning this division, uh, is there still maybe a feeling like, even with the Dodgers as a perennial powerhouse, that this might be the most wide open it is? Because we, we know that the Dodgers have spent a few years rehabilitating their system, investing a ton in, uh, in young players, and that they have not only a very good roster, but they have suddenly, not suddenly, but sort of suddenly, uh, developed the very best farm system in baseball too. Uh, <laughs> is it kind of the situation where it's conceivable that while the NLS is a huge uphill challenge for every team this year, that it might take 95 wins uh, to win it, that in two or three years, there's a fear that it might take 105? I think that's exactly what it is. I think that especially losing Granky sort of really just sort of balanced things out as far as the NLS goes. And so I feel like that was kind of when they saw their window. They feel like the, the Dodgers kind of, you know, they're look at their starting pitching and it's certainly not as strong or certainly not up to the level that it was last year. And, you know, as, as every week goes on and another Dodgers starting pitcher gets injured, kind of tips the scales a little bit more, but you know, that farm system is so incredibly deep in LA, but there's still so much more development that has to happen before they all reach their true talent. So exactly, that's exactly what you were saying is that there's a very small window here where they could, I think in their minds, they could certainly be the class of the division for, for this year and possibly next year. But, you know, <laughs> after that, you know, when, once all of these Dodgers prospects sort of, you know, start approaching their ceiling or thereabouts, then yeah, the, the, that window is certainly going to close. And so they, they feel like they sort of need to strike while the opportunity is there. Which combination of free agent pitcher and free agent contract is more anxiety inducing for Giants fans? Do you think <laughs> is it Samarja or Cueto? I, I would say that sight unseen, most would probably would say Samarja because there's also there's a little bit of that familiarity there because he was on the A's for a little while, so there's a little bit of that, that barrier presence. But I would say that probably the more you look at the numbers, it's probably Cueto at this point because it is so long, and you know that contract sort of you know goes out and <laughs> past past the 2020s <laughs> into that area, and that's feels like a long way away. And you're looking at, you know, a prospective, you know, payroll for the year 2021, and they're still going to be paying him over $21 million that year. And for Giants fans, I think they're okay with rationalizing that for someone like Buster Posey, who is going to make $21 million that year. But the idea that Johnny Cueto, who is already 30, who is now coming into the Giants on such a big contract, that's, you know, I'm not sure that people really think that they're going to necessarily see the end of that contract or that it's going to be a successful game for them. So, I, but I, I, at the same time, I feel like they'll definitely be satisfied if they can sort of get, if they can get at least two more years of sort of peak or above competent Johnny Cueto and certainly from Samarja, I think that most fans will, will take that at this point. Right. And there is an opt out after those two years, which exactly. Sam and I usually talk about as being 
player friendly, but there is that perspective that it <laughs> could be team friendly in certain cases. Maybe this is one of the cases where people would argue that. Yeah, potentially. Yeah. It does sort of feel like with Quato, I don't it almost I don't know if there's ever been a, a, a deal where it seems more likely to be certain who won the deal by like the third week of the season. <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, like, I mean, he was so bad in the second half last year that there's a real sort of broken. There's a, you know, a real a reasonable hypothesis that he broke and that we'll either see that he's broken or not. Yeah, I mean, it's weird because I feel like there's there's a real potential for Giants fans to sort of look at this starting rotation, especially at this point, and to especially look at sort of the top three and to see, you know, Bumgarner and Cueto and Samarja and think, wow, that is that is an immense upgrade <laughs> over what we had last season. But the fact is, you know, Cueto and Samarja are going to have to they're going to have to pitch the way that they're paid. <laughs> so and that's still I think, yeah, like we said before, it kind of gives fans a little bit of anxiety, but uh at the same time, I guess hope can be a good thing sometimes, and it's better to have that than the alternative. I like this from uh, he Cueto pitched against uh, minor leaguers yesterday, I think, and uh, after one pitch, he screamed out "Mesadora," which is <laughs> Spanish for rocking chair. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be a really fun season. <laughs> <Come> yeah, <on. laughs> uh, you mentioned uh, Bumgarner. He is the one of those three who was, you know, who's been there and who's been the rock. Uh, he has thrown 1,260 innings as a major leaguer, if you include the postseason. And um, more of those innings have come at the end of seasons when he might have been a little more fatigued. I would say that uh, under any reasonable interpretation of his career, those many, many innings have been very worth it, regardless of what happens now. Uh, but he's never shown even a, a blink of, uh, of injury risk. Uh, up to now. Now there is a there is some sort of small pains that he's dealing with right now. Uh, he hasn't looked good in spring, but ignore that stuff. Just put this back conversation back a month ago. How worried if you were building a team around him and Posey, particularly, would you be about the fact that um, you know there's there's so much riding on this guy who has thrown more innings through 25 than any pitcher since 2000, except for Felix Hernandez. I mean, I think you would be a little bit worried, but at the same time, I think that what you can reasonably expect from Bumgarner sort of in the next two or three years is still, you know, is still very clearly like number one ace kind of stuff. Uh, he's still only 26 years old. You know, this is this is a guy who, you know, last year, you know, we talked about, you know, all of the innings that he put on his arm in 2014 and especially through that, that playoff. I think he pitched 50 postseason innings that year. This is a guy who actually still put up better uh, statistics last season, still posted a career best strikeout rate, a career low walk rate, and among other things. So this is a guy who actually bounced back pretty well, all things considering, from that 2014. So at the same time, they're putting a lot of mileage on that arm right now, uh, on his on his left arm, I want to be very clear, on his left arm, unlike <laughs> what I actually wrote in the essay, which keeps me up at night and gives me terrors, but... But yeah, I mean, this is a guy that, you know, even if you were building your rotation from now, this thing is a lot of people that still, if you knew that you were going to get two or three more good years, especially before he turns 30, there's there's still a, a lot of bullets left in the gun. And, and you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see him put up similar numbers to last year. I don't think we're going to probably see such a superlative kind of 2014 season from him probably again. I mean, that was probably peak Bumgarner, I would imagine. But I still think that 80 or 90th percent, you know, uh, Bumgarner from that is still pretty pretty darn good 
And Matt Cain is still a professional baseball player. Technically is, speaking, yes. Are, are there any expectations for him beyond that? Aside from staying upright and mobile and billing, I mean, you know, Matt Cain is being paid a lot of money. So, and and Matt Cain is really beloved, and Matt Cain uh, has built up a lot of goodwill over the years. So, yeah, the people would like to see Matt Cain be uh, a functional kind of fifth starter. That would be kind of nice. Um, at the same time, you know, it's <laughs> that kind of that fifth starter role might be coming down to him or Chris Heston, who has shown a little bit of potential himself. But, you know, at the same time, it's like, you know, Matt Cain is his <laughs> Matt Cain has seen some stuff <laughs> over his years as a giant. So it's kind of uh, it's kind of uh, crazy to think that he's, uh, you know, only, uh, you know, 31. <laughs> it seems like he's easily he's probably aged five more years than that, just based on this lack of run support, <laughs> especially earlier in his career. But, you know, if, if Matt Cain is healthy and Matt Cain can give them 20 starts this year as a somewhat reliable fifth starter, uh, the Giants will take that easily. So much of the consistency in the Giants over the course of these three World Series was their bullpen. They basically had like pretty much the exact same bullpen, which is a very strange thing to have in, in any situation. I mean, bullpens turn over so much, but uh, mm-hmm. Casilla, Romo, Lopez, Affelt, we're all there for the, you know, for the whole time. And so Affelt retired and was not good last year. Petit, uh, Yusmero Petit, uh, was a very effective long man, and uh, he's gone. Um, and they haven't really added anybody to that bullpen um, in a number of years. They, they used to sign relievers. They don't sign relievers anymore. Uh, is the bullpen a liability at this point? Remains to be seen. I mean, but the, you know, there's there's expectations there. I mean, Casilla and Romo are making a combined uh, almost sixteen million dollars this year, so it's not a huge investment. But you know, there's you, you want to see what you're going to get out of that. Javi Lopez is now he's a pitch for. I think he's entering his thirteenth or fourteenth season now. So, uh, and his arm still hasn't fallen off. So good for him. But at the same time, there's it's going to be up to them because you know the starting pitching, you know the onus is going to be on them to sort of take it into the sixth and seventh. But the Giants typically have been able to hold that down. Now I think that it's not out of the realm of possibility that they're going to maybe try to look for another arm or two to try to supplement some of the guys that they lost last year. I don't. I, I I'm be curious to see that how much we really uh, understand the effect of Affelt leaving because. He had been there for so long and had been such a such a stalwart back there. So his absence, I think, is really going to be the most interesting to me to see how they sort of bounce back from that. But at the same time, yeah, they're going to need to Dave Rigetti's going to have to work a little bit of his bullpen magic, I think, just to keep these guys consistent uh, kind of in the way they've been in years past. So the Giants suddenly seem to have the best infield in baseball, perhaps the certainly the best homegrown infield in baseball. Who do you think qualifies as the biggest developmental surprise in this infield? Obviously, there are guys like Posey, who we all knew were going to be great as much as we ever know with a baseball player. But then there are guys on the other side of that spectrum. So who is the most out of left field infielder, if that makes any sense? I mean, Matt Duffy wasn't drafted until the 18th round. <laughs> he <Right>. finished, uh, <laughs> I think he finished second in rookie of the year voting last year to Chris Bryant. So mm-hmm. I would say he probably qualifies, but yeah, I mean, think him individually, but then like just to kind of look at this collection of four infielders and say that like, this is actually was going to be the best infield in baseball. Like there's a, like there's a very legitimate argument there. 
Um, but they saw, you know, pretty decent development from Brandon Belt last year, whose, you know, expectations, they, they've kind of feel like they've been around forever since he came up. But last year was, you know, a year where he very much kind of felt like he was starting to put things together. And, and Joe Panic was kind of a, kind of a revelation uh, during the 2014 playoffs. Not, not so much offensively, but just in terms of just being a rookie and just sort of stepping in. And I think he started every single playoff game that year. So, and just to be able to see him, you know, sort of progress through last season. And actually, I think he led all second baseman in true average. So, I mean, he, of course, more than held his own. And, and, and by pretty much all the metrics, Brandon Crawford was the best all around shortstop in baseball last year and, and got a pretty nice contract during this offseason and, and probably deserved every dollar of it. So, to be able to, as long as those four guys, you know, can can look around. I mean, it was such a shocker to see, you know, you thought they were going to have such a hole, especially once Pablo Sandoval left for Boston, that they were going to have such a hole at third. I think Duffy kind of stepping in last year uh, kind of was the glue that kind of held that together. And I know Pakoda is kind of, it kind of, I mean, a little bit conservative on him, but kind of looks at him to sort of post pretty much the same, uh, especially counting stats that he did last year. So I think if he can pretty much replicate what he did last year, I think it kind of holds everything together. And yeah, I mean, just th- through the middle of that order, especially once you throw in Posey and, uh, and now if Andre Pence can stay healthy, Angel Pagan can stay healthy, but th- through that middle of the lineup, they've got a lot of core hitters. They're going to score some runs. Uh, if the pitching can just at least be sort of average, if, if the Giants offense can hold its own, I mean, they're going to, they're going to win a lot of sort of six to three, six to four ball games. I feel like. So this is another one of those uh, am, did I see a trend that didn't exist question, uh, not just me, but kind of everybody. It was like 20 years. It was Sabian and the Giants' reputation that they couldn't develop hitters. You wrote about this in your essay. They went, I mean, they like literally went 20 years without developing a good hitter. Uh, <laughs> literally 20 years. And uh, and now there's Pedro just, Feliz. I mean, where have you gone? <laughs> and and so then now besides you know besides Posey who was a high draft pick now they're now they're like Cardinalsing it like they're getting guys in the 16th 18th round or like guys that everybody thought were terrible overdrafts and uh, or fourth rounders or third rounders and turning them into like actual stars. So what is the best way to process this change? from our perspective, as a change or just as regression and there was never anything there there? I think that this was probably a situation where kind of all the stars are starting to align. You know, this was, you know, they, you know a lot of these guys that we talked about didn't necessarily come from from nowhere. They, like, a lot of them were high, high draft picks, but I think you're kind of seeing like kind of the perfect confluence of everybody's development sort of coming together at the right time. Now, that's a very uh, fortuitous thing for the Giants because their farm system is actually pretty shallow. Let's say it's uh, it's not good <laughs> is the technical term, you know, and that's why I kind of, when I talked earlier about, I feel like they, they're looking at sort of the next couple of years as a very specific window where they can strike. I feel like, again, part of that is because the farm system is so depleted. So they're looking sort of at the guys that they have up now. They're saying, by golly, we did it. <laughs> they're up there. They're developed. They're in their mid twenties. If they can stay healthy and they can sort of keep uh, keep progressing, keep developing, then yeah, this is our time right now. And so that's why you know, sort of from that core middle of the lineup, I think everything else kind of flows. But yeah, this is this is a new and brave era uh, for Giants fans where uh, they they kind of haven't seen this before, so kind of not really sure what to do with it. 
And all three of those guys, Duffy, Panic, and Crawford, are projected to be worse, which is not surprising. That's what projection mm-hmm. systems kind of tend to do with guys who suddenly get a lot better. So Duffy was 3.8 wins above replacement player last year. He is projected for 2.4. Joe Panic, he was 2.8 last year. He's projected for 0.9. Brandon Crawford was 4.7, and he's projected for 2.1. Is there... Any one of those guys, especially that you think the projections are missing on or or one of those guys that you think is most likely not to regress? I mean, generally speaking, I would be surprised if Brandon Crawford suffered like a, you know, 60% drop in warp as uh, Pakoda thinks he might. Just because I feel like, uh, you know, we've, we've kind of been seeing this development, this sort of upward trend for a couple of years. And also, especially uh, offensively speaking, but just his game is just so well-rounded, I think, that uh, I, I think that as long as he can stay healthy, that the trend lines are going to be there. I feel like he's he probably still hasn't even reached his ceiling yet. Um, I'm not saying that he's going to be, you know, the quote-unquote best shortstop in baseball again this year, but I would uh, look to him to sort of be sort of like the, the corner, sort of, not, not corner, but the, the corner middle infielder, <laughs> but the corner of the, the, the lineup, sort of the cornerstone, and sort of the guy that kind of keeps the guys behind him and the, the guys in front of him kind of playing above their heads a little bit. Yeah, and, and as you mentioned, the giant system is not strong. I think they're one of three teams without a player on baseball prospectuses, <laughs> top 101 prospects. I guess the comeback to that is that Duffy, Panic, and Crawford never made a top 100 list anywhere, I believe. I don't know if that's right. a, a convincing comeback, but if you're a Giants fan, <laughs> it certainly seems like a, an easy comeback. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, Duffy uh, didn't, I don't think he hit a home run in his entire college career and then he right. in the minors, and he hit 13 <laughs> last year. So, yeah, this, uh, I guess, Dodgers uh, or Giants prospects are all sort of all about outplaying expectations a little bit, but. Yeah, at this point, I mean, it's basically Christian Arroyo and then <laughs> not, not really a whole lot else, but, you know, Arroyo himself still hasn't even, you know, I think he's 24 and he's still not quite, you know, close to ex- reaching, you know, his expectations. So, yeah, the the, the onus is going to be on the guys who are already there in the big leagues to sort of keep playing at their current level and keep progressing because the farm system has a long way to catch up at this point. Matt Duffy's college OPSs, okay? His college OPSs, freshman year, 536, sophomore year, 588, (laughs) junior year, 625, and then he got drafted. That is amazing. We wouldn't have signed him no, for the Sonoma we, Stompers. We, we, had, we would have turned up our noses at we, Matt Duffy. Well, no, we had we had one of his teammates. Was, oh, uh, that's two, right. Two of his teammates were actually on the Stompers. And one of them, uh, the year in Duffy's junior year, when Duffy had the 244, 336, 289 line, a 625 OPS, our guy hit 302, 405, 407 with an 812. So really not even remotely close as as players at that time and uh the other one had a 751 yeah huh. well incredible scouts are good i guess <laughs> yeah scouts are very good uh okay well can you give us a win total prediction for the 2016 giants uh so i think uh i'm probably a little bit more optimistic on them as opposed to pakoda i probably see them winning 90 games and right right in the hunt for the division title. All right. Well, if you are on Twitter, which Eric would not recommend, you could follow him <laughs> at Eric Mal. That's Eric with a K. 
and then you can find him and follow him at his many outlets. Thank you, Eric. Thanks, guys. All right, so stay tuned after the break to hear Jeff Paternostro talk to our pal Grant Brisby. second half of our Effectively Wild 2016 Giants preview, we're joined by Grant Brisby, who writes about the Giants at McCovey Chronicles and baseball in general at SB Nation. Grant, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I have to say, this might be a waste of our time because it's an even year, so the Giants are just going to win the World Series, right? Yeah, I've been telling everyone. I've I've pre-written so much stuff. I mean, I've already got the parade route scheduled for uh, late October. Um, you know, I've got a piece about how Kurt Ainsworth comes back and, and pitches Game Three of the World Series. Uh, it's gonna be great. If the Giants do get there, it will be in part due to can we call it an uncharacteristic spending spree this past off season, or is it not that far out of line with sort of the organizational philosophy? No, I'd say it's definitely uncharacteristic. Uh, they haven't done anything like it ever. The closest they came was Barry Zito one year and then Aaron Rowan uh, a year after, but nothing like this where they've just combined all their big ticket items in one off season. Do you think this was a response to the Dodgers' recent success? Pressure from the Diamondbacks, a little bit of both, or just needing to fill out a rotation that has lost a little bit of its luster over the last couple of years? Yeah, I think it was a clear need and the budget just happened to align right as that clear need was coming up. You know, back in August or September, I was taking a look at the at the free agents to come, what the Giants might need. And the emergence of Matt Duffy and Joe Panic over the last year, you know, really solidified the lineup to where they could say, we need starting pitchers. You know, the strength of our farm is, is relievers. The lineup is mostly young and set. We need starting pitchers. We have X amount of dollars to spend. We're a big market team that's usually in the top five of payroll. It just, the stars kind of aligned this offseason. And it happened to align in a market that was pretty saturated with uh, quality starting pitchers. Now, they didn't pick up any of the big ticket items like Zach Greinke or David Price, but they spent a lot of money for Johnny Cueto and Jeff Samarja, both of whom had down years in 2015. Are they counting on some Dave Rigetti magic here or just normal bounce back stuff? I would think normal bounce back stuff. I, I would think it'd be uh, pretty pretty egregious to, to assume that you have the magic pitching coach that other teams don't have. I think even you know if the Pirates were to suggest that, uh, they would be a little silly. Um, I think that it was just a, a way to and obviously, it, you're not going to call them great bargains. That that's pretty. Uh, it's pretty hard to do when you spend a combined 220 million on two pitchers. But they would have been 300 million dollar pitchers combined if they were free agents after the 2014 season. And if you believe that that talent's still there, uh, you know I. I could make an argument two weeks ago that Cueto and Samarjo made more sense than just Greinke. After the first couple of weeks of spring training, when I've got all this useless information uh, floating in my head and, and bad starts, you know, now I'm starting to question it. But in theory, you would rather have kind of spread that money around rather than have one Greinke, unless you were guaranteed to get the Zach Greinke from last year, which you probably aren't. So how concerned are you about Jeff Samarjo? The velocity hasn't quite been there in spring so far, and we are in the middle of March now, where that stuff becomes a little bit more relevant. Uh, He's had a weird career path in general, 
sort of a pop-up guy when he was with the Cubs after he'd been written off in the minors. Are you worried that this might go south in a hurry? No, I mean, sure, it could go south in a hurry. He, he was pretty spectacularly bad last year, at least when it comes to preventing runs. Uh, and I'm not worried about the velocity necessarily, even though it, we're getting on in spring training. Um, you know, I don't worry a whole lot about spring training at all. Uh, I, I just, you know, when I could rattle off a list of pitchers who have had miserable springs and come back strong. Madison Bumgarner last year for one. Uh, so I'm not too worried about it. I thought he looked pretty okay today. I mean, I watched his start uh, on on uh, Wednesday afternoon against the Mariners, and and I thought he looked okay. I thought you know he was getting some movement, getting some uncomfortable swings. Uh, maybe the velocity wasn't exactly in the mid 90s, but then again, middle of spring, I'm not too worried about it. So. I would expect him to be at least a functional, above-average starting pitcher, uh, you know, a two-win kind of, three-win kind of starting pitcher, which is what the Giants need because internally, they might not have had that. They might have had just flat-out replacement-level pitchers all the way down. And I guess I can ask the same question about Johnny Cueto, though he was good for the first half-ish of 2015. How's his back look? How does Johnny Cueto look? He looks, he looks, uh, he's interesting. He's a fun pitcher to watch. You know, I've, I've paid a little attention to him in his career, but now that he's on the team I follow most closely, uh, it, it's, it's really, I, I can't comprehend how hard it must be to keep all those deliveries and quirks straight to keep, you know, it's hard enough for pitchers to repeat their mechanics when they're doing the same thing every time. But when you add quick pitches and shimmies and twists and turns, uh, I would think that spring training is more important to him than it would be other pitchers, not necessarily for results, but just as a, a matter of getting getting your work in, getting your reps in. Uh, so so far he looks good, but he's he's definitely a risk. He's the you know more money for Barry Zito for one fewer year. If he pitches well, it's a steal of a deal. It's basically a two year deal for for many millions because he'll opt out. And that the Giants might want to be hoping for that. Let let those last those final four years be someone else's problem. But if he doesn't, if, if it's a stinker this year and it just goes right into a stinker next year, uh, that, that's a pretty long contract for a lot of money to, for a team that doesn't like to give that kind of money out. So uh, it's definitely worrisome if he can't, can't keep it up. We move to that young lineup you talked a little bit about earlier. And you mentioned Joe Panic and Matt Duffy, but I actually want to start with Brandon Crawford, who had a breakout season of his own in 2015, going from a okay bat but a glove first shortstop to a guy that hit 20 home runs in a home park that is very difficult to hit home runs in what was the biggest change you noticed last year and is that you think sustainable going into 2016 I think he looked a lot more comfortable against left-handed pitchers than he might have in the past. Uh, his splits, I don't know if it's the kind of thing that you can keep going forward, but at least to the eyeball test, you know, he passed. Uh, he was he was never a patient guy, but he seemed more willing to sit on one pitch and drive it, not necessarily work, worry about working on the counts or working the counts like like he might have thought his path to success was previously. He was a little bit more aggressive in a good way last year, and that led to a spike in power. Now, we'll see if if the pitchers are going to adjust to that and and really kind of feed in garbage because he, he did slow down a little bit towards the end of last year. But I think being a little bit more aggressive on, on uh, fastballs and fastball counts, I think, was, was kind of a help for him. And moving now to uh, Panic and Duffy specifically, I know I was one of the people that may have chuckled a little bit when the Giants took Joe Panic in the first round <laughs> of the draft a few years ago. And of course, the farm system of the Giants has never really been 
a quote-unquote strength, or a te- they're not a team that shows up high on org rankings, but they keep sort of spitting out players like Joe Panic and Matt Duffy. How do they do it? Boy, this is all new territory for me, too. I mean, I'm I'm used to the Giants being the team that could always come up with some interesting arms, but they could never develop the position players. It seemed like if it wasn't Bill Miller or Marvin Bernard, you know, you didn't have any talent coming up. And everyone who came up just fell flat in their face from Calvin Murray to Dante Powell. Like Nate, Nate Sheerholtz is a success story for that period of Giants baseball. He was like the guy you pointed to and said, OK, they did OK with with Sheerholtz. So all of a sudden they've now got this magic touch and and I. I would like to think it's it's like a coincidence or not a coincidence, but I would like to think it's you know something that we can't necessarily see. But Duffy and Panic are similar in that they're making a lot of contact, they're making a lot of solid contact, they're letting the letting the ball go deep, and, and so they're able to take it the other way and and make uh, uh, decisions at the plate that that let them kind of play the field rather than just have a, a brainless kind of one pull happy approach. So I, maybe they're targeting these guys. You've got Kristen Arroyo coming up, who's, who's sort of built from the same same model. So maybe they found sort of like this kind of gap in in perceived value, where Panic had a lot of things where he he necess- didn't necessarily set the world on fire. He didn't have sixty steel, steel speed. He didn't have twenty homer power. Uh, but he had the pitch recognition and the swing, the line drive swing that that maybe you can't teach. And if you have that with him and uh, obviously, someone taught it to Duffy because Duffy didn't have it in college. So uh, they're doing something right. I think it might be with, with whom they target. Seems silly to have talked about the Giants lineup this long without mentioning Buster Posey. So we'll talk about Buster Posey. And I had a similar line of inquiry when I did the Diamondbacks preview about Paul Goldschmidt. You know, Posey has, you know, is an MVP level player year in and year out. But it seems like he's still somehow a little bit underrated by fans or the baseball public in general. Do you think that's fair? And why is that? I could see that. And I, I would put the blame almost exclusively on uh, AT&T Park. Uh, you know, when you look at a guy who's hitting three something, uh, you know, 20 home runs, you're going to say that's good. And you might include the qualifier. That's great for a catcher. But it's not like the eye-popping numbers that we were seeing, you know, especially with the the offensive downturn. You know, if you put Posey in a different stadium in the year 2000, his numbers are going to be, you know, obscene. If you play around with the, that tool on baseball reference that kind of lets you toggle, it's, if you put him on the 2000 Phillies, his numbers are going to pop out. They're going to be those kind of back-of-the-baseball card numbers that you might be used to with your heroes growing up. So I think the park, I think just the down offensive year, or down offensive uh, environment has a little bit to do with that. Um, I think he's he's not necessarily drastically underrated. I don't think uh, people are like, oh, let me let me check in on this Posey and see what he's all about. But I do think he's not necessarily perceived as that perennial MVP threat that maybe he is. Since you were wondering, I ran Buster Posey very quickly through the 2000 Rockies neutralizer. <laughs> on Baseball Reference, and last year he would have hit 382, 447, 569. Oh, delightful. Let's see. The I've got the Phillies up right now. And in 2012, you would have hit 378 with 29 homers and 138 RBIs. And last year, it'd be 349 with 22 homers and 119 RBIs. So, you know what I mean? It's like those numbers would have stuck in your head, even as like, you know, you know, as a, as a smart baseball fan, like, okay, you have to take into account league context and, and you have to take into account park. But 
you know, just some numbers stick with you. And like think, Cor- in Coors in 2012, he would have hit 413 with 172 RBIs. Basically, that's the season I remember, just in, in different words. So. Yeah. <laughs> so not a San Francisco giant presently, but I'm sure you saw the story that came out about Barry Bonds winning a home run derby contest against the Marlins, including Giancarlo Stanton. Yes, that's, um, boy, was I grateful for that story. That was a very fun story to, to lead off some morning coverage. So you think Barry Bonds could still do a job in the majors right now as a DH? I, 51? He, Is he 51? Is that right? 51. 51. So could he do a job? I think... Julio Franco was a league average hitter at 49. Exactly. I mean, that, that that's the, the obvious comp. Uh, you know, if Julio Franco could do it... Mm, I, you know, I, I think he could. I just, I don't know how successful he would be. Um, I don't know if he can run without crumbling into to ash and dust. Um, you know, I, how much DH are you going to put in that DH? Like how, if he can't run at all. I mean, David one of those minor league spring training games where you can just hit and they're guy, they have somebody else run for you. Exactly. We're talking like real fantasy camp stuff here. I mean, David Ortiz is like, haha, David Ortiz can't run. David Ortiz can run pretty well for a guy his size. He would probably beat me in a foot race if he really had to. You know what I mean? It's, I'm not sure Bonds could even do that at 51. Um, but I, I still believe he could hit. I don't know how well he could hit. I don't know if he could hit 240, you know, with 15 home runs and a full-time DH job. I wouldn't put it past him, though. I mean, I think his pitch recognition is so good. It would be like, you know, you go to the gym and you see like a 50-year-old guy just, just kind of hitting hitting jumpers from all around the basketball court. You know, he might not be able to drive past you, but he's still got that one skill, that muscle memory that allows him to succeed at that one part of the game. And I don't think that hitting a baseball off of a pitcher is that dissimilar. It's You, you would need to have a certain amount of quickness and pitch recognition that might not have evaporated totally if you're an all-time great by, by 51. I would just be more concerned with everything else in the game as far as like running bases and, and not totally collapsing. So as a Giants fan, who are you more concerned with as a division rival going into 2016? Is it the Dodgers, despite their pitching rotation woes, or is it the more balanced Diamondbacks? Uh, they're both, I mean, frightening. I mean, I'm such a scaredy cat that the the Rockies frighten me and the Padres frighten me for different reasons. It's uh, um, I would say the Dodgers scare me more in that I'm just kind of tired of them winning the division. The Diamondbacks still scare me as a rival. And yet if they won and they got in the postseason and they started going bananas, it wouldn't uh, like rankle me quite in the same way. So um, on a paper standpoint, the Dodgers, I still think they have, you know, wild cards with, with Urias if they need to, like, kind of dip into that depth. And if he he has that Felix Hernandez path to where he he comes up and starts dominating right away, I still think they've got a, a few tricks up their sleeve and, and we might be shoveling dirt on Scott Casimir a little bit too soon. Um, so on paper, I'll, I'll take them, too, just because I think they were the stronger team in February and I'm supposed to not care about March. So I, I'm not going to I shouldn't change my answer based on a couple weeks of spring training all right grant we'll let you go on this for our listeners out there who might not follow the giants as closely as you do 
who's an under-the-radar player that might have a big impact on their success in 2016? Oh, that's a good question. The under-the-radar player that might have some success... It's a tough one because you've pretty much heard of, of everyone in their lineup. I mean, Denard Span's not exactly going to sneak up on on people who are listening to Effectively Wild. Um, I think that Gregor Blanco always finds a way to get 250, 300, 400 at bats, and he's always giving them quality at bats. Uh, so I would look at him for for one starter. Uh, but but I think Chris Heston will will have a big impact on the season, and I'm not sure if it's going to be uh, positive or negative. But I think that there's a pretty solid chance that he throws 140 innings or something this year. I I, I could see him filling in for Matt Cain enough. You know, Jake Peavy's 35. Uh, you've got the typical bumps and scrapes that you're going to have in a rotation throughout the year. So uh, Heston doesn't necessarily need to be that sort of like semi-star that he was last year when he was like almost like a rookie of the year candidate for for a couple of months there. Um, he can just be an average guy, and I think the Giants would get a lot of utility out of that. I, I know I joked with you off air that you could have given me 70 guesses about the Giants' number five starter, and I wouldn't have guessed Chris Heston despite <laughs> him no-hitting the Mets this year, or last year fairly famously. So I guess, I guess that counts as under the radar. Yeah, he'll sneak up on you. <laughs> Grant Brisby, you can read his stuff at McCovey Chronicles and SB Nation and follow him on Twitter at McCovey Cron. Thanks for coming on. You got it. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Giants preview complete. Thank you to Eric and Grant for coming on. You can support the podcast by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild and clicking become a patron. Today's $5 a month or more patrons to thank George Kimmett, Maxwell Rowe, Joseph Rockney, Greg Powell, and Robert Canny. Thanks. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild and rate and review and subscribe to the show on iTunes. You can also buy our book, The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, which comes out on May 3rd. It's the story of how Sam and I ran the Sonoma Stompers, an independent league baseball team, last summer. The book is available to pre-order at Amazon and Barnes & Noble right now. You can also get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription to the Baseball Reference Play Index by going to baseballreference.com and using the coupon code BP when you subscribe. That's it for today. We will be back tomorrow with the listener email show. You can send us questions at podcast at baseballperspectus.com or message us through Patreon. Talk to you then. wrote the Giants essay for this year's Baseball Prospectus Annual, and uh, that's who he'll be talking about. Uh, Eric, uh, I don't have a question. I actually don't have a (laughs) question in mind. Dang it. There are no questions surrounding the Giants this season.